So um, today I married um, two people from the Sangha, um, Ed and Allison. And uh, Ed and Allison have been in the Sangha for a number of years. Allison was really involved in the um, um, fundraising for the Wozomoya project. And they, um, they asked me to marry them, and it worked out that I was in town and could do it. And it was really beautiful. It was lovely. And actually, there were a number of Sangha members there who I think are still there, because I don't see them here tonight. Um, it was very sweet um, and moving to marry them, actually. It was very moving, their sincerity, their commitment. They've, already, they've been together 12 years and um, they decided to get married after considering it soberly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and their attitude, the values that they talked to me about were very uh, striking in terms of w what they wanted expressed in their marriage. And they talked about openness and um, a love that doesn't um, reify or... Um, or um, codify or um, contain the other and about a relationship that's not based on habit but based on reality, based on being real together and committing to being real as the commitment for their marriage. So I thought I would talk about commitment tonight. And I'll begin with a quote, a quote that I used to hear a lot in the Dharma. I don't hear it much anymore, but when I was a young man in the Dharma, I used to hear this at almost every retreat I would go to. And because there was an encouragement to commit to the practice, not only to go to retreat, but really commit to being there and commit to doing the practice in a very thorough, very wholehearted way. And so this is from the Scottish Himalayan expedition, this quote. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves also. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance which no one could have dreamed would have come their way. So what's implied here is the power of commitment, the power that happens when we voice our yes, when we take our vow, when we take our stand, when we commit to something, even though we don't know what will happen. And this is part of the essence of commitment, is this not knowing. And then there's this, this quote always came with the quote from Goethe, who said, whatever you can do or dream you can do, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. 
And so commitment becomes an interesting question for us in the Dharma. What is it, what is it to commit? What, what's the act of committing? And then what are we committing to? And why would we commit in that way? The word commit etymologically means to put together or to join or to connect or to pledge oneself. And so it, it, it brings forth something that's not, it brings oneself forth and then something else. It brings something together. It creates something new. It's the birth of something beyond what we know to commit. Commitment means the state of being bound emotionally or intellectually to an idea or a course of action. Committal, the act of entrusting. The act of entrusting. That we begin, when we commit, we entrust ourselves to something greater than ourselves. And when we commit to the Dharma, we, we entrust ourselves to the Dharma. Any of you knew Sean Fite, who used to sit with us, and um, um, sometimes before the sittings, he would lead some uh, kirtan, some Buddhist kirtan. And Sean, Sean was a Sangha member for many years and um, set a lot of retreats with me, a lot of two-month retreats, very dedicated yogi. And at a certain point, I remember he was going off to Asia. He was going to... Um, to um, commit to take his vows to become a monastic and and he was nervous about it he'd never been a monastic I'm not even sure if he'd been to Asia at that point and he was feeling um, uh, you know appropriately there was an appropriate trepidation about taking the the step and I remember he told me he had a talk with Jack Cornfield and he said, and he was telling Jack his concerns, his anxiety, his fear. And Jack said a beautiful thing to him. He said, you know, you're putting, you're entrusting yourself to the hands of the Buddha. You're putting yourself in the hands of the Buddha. And, and he said, and then Jack said, he said, and they're good hands. They're good hands. And when we think or when we start to consider or contemplate what it means to entrust ourselves to the Dharma, one way we could think about it is we're putting ourselves in the hands of the Buddha. We're putting our hands in something that is rooted in the, in the goodness of human reality, in the maturity of human life. That we're entrusting ourselves to something beyond ourselves but that's inherent in our nature. That's inherent to us. So, as I was considering this committing or entrusting that we do, the first, the first commitment that we make or the first level of commitment we make is to actually being here 
It's not, this, not really to something outside of ourselves. Even when we say the Buddha, we're not talking about something outside of ourselves. And so the first level of commitment is to actually being here now. And to seeing what that means to be here now, even as you're listening to the talk. To begin to sense your body, to listen to the talk, not so much through your ears or your mind, but by staying present in your body and letting the talk come to you. Finding your ground, finding your center here. Finding your presence here in the present moment. And beginning to trust that, committing to that. On one level we could say it's the first level of commitment and maybe it's also the ultimate level of commitment, finally. That this is where where we begin our commitment, where we take our vow, where we take our stand, is actually to be here. And then to commit and see that the unfoldment of body and heart and mind is what we're committing to. The unfoldment of human life is what we're committing to. And partly, and especially key from a Buddhist perspective, is being willing to commit Actually, I'll use a Taoist quote. To the 10,000 joys and sorrows of human life. That we're committing to the whole catastrophe, as John Kabat-Zinn would say. Or we're committing to the reality of being a human being. And with the understanding that that commitment will lead us to the maturity of what it is to be a human being. And so our sitting practice is simply to stay still, is to stay present, is to be willing to be open. And again, this was one of the values that was so striking today with Ed and, and um, Allison, is how much in, in their wedding ceremony, they talked about being willing to stay with um, both what is good and what is difficult. What is the joy of being together and the sorrow of being together. And it's really, um, it's, not, it's not actually so radical, but for most of us, we don't, most people don't do a traditional wedding ceremony that I know, most Dharma practitioners. But in the traditional ceremony, it's even it's the same principle, for better or for worse. There's a commitment to something beyond what we like or don't like, what would be fun or not fun. There's, there's a commitment to reality to human reality. And human reality includes both the beauty of human life and the mystery of human life and the delight of human life and the anguish of human life, the sorrow, the suffering, the dis-ease of human life. The totality is what we commit to. And we commit to it and we learn the skill of mindfulness to give us the basis to stay present with all of human life as it appears here or here or here or here or here. So Dharma, Dharma practice begins with this willingness to commit to embrace life in this moment, in each moment, in, in every moment actually. 
I often think they got that idea 24-7 from the Dharma. Because that's what the Dharma asks of us. It asks us to be present 24-7 for the whole show, the whole thing. And what's beautiful, and this is, uh, the Buddha talks about this a number of places in the teaching. He says, he uses this phrase, he says, if it were not possible, I would not teach it. If it were not possible, I would, I would not teach it. It's really, it's really good to let that sink in. Remember that said the Buddha taught and out of his compassion for human beings. And that he didn't teach what he didn't think was either skillful, useful, or doable. And so Dharma practice begins with this willingness to embrace life in each moment and to begin to see the value of that. That our commitment begins to reveal something precious, something, something good. And that goodness is here now, no matter what your experience is. It's not based on your experience being good. It's based on the goodness of your presence with whatever your experience is. It's why Suzuki Roshi could say, as part of his teaching, he would say, just to be alive is enough. Just to be alive is enough. Because everything we need and everything we seek is, is available to us, is waiting for us, now, waiting for us to be present in this moment so that the Dharma can reveal itself through us. So there's a commitment to the present moment. Another level of commitment is the commitment to compassion, is the commitment to kindness, is the commitment to caring. And really, they're inseparable. I don't think we can really commit to the present moment without being kind to ourselves. Because human life is difficult. The variety of vicissitudes of human life is infinite. The sorrow, the pain, the, 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 the tragedy of human life. I mean... It's happening now all around us. The war, the, the incessant ignorance, hatred, fear, the, in some sense, mindless destruction that really has continued for the whole of human existence. It's not that this time is actually so special. What may be special about our time is how close everything is, how immediate things are because of our technology at this time. We don't wait a day or a year or six months or a few weeks to hear about what happens in different parts of the world. We know it immediately. 
And so we feel it, we experience it. And, you know, people have different opinions about if it's as good, is this bad? And I, I have no idea if it's good or bad, although I think it, I think it's interesting. I think, I think there's an interesting possibility. Maybe, maybe this immediacy, possibly this immediacy will be a good thing. The fact that we can't avoid the pain of others, the pain of the world, the sorrow of the world. Maybe it will force us to grow up as human beings. Nothing else has so far, as far as I can tell, in that way. I mean, given that human beings have been hurting each other, acting as if we're not all here together for the whole history of humanity. But for us, if we commit to the Dharma, if we commit to a life of truth, then that commitment is a life of compassion. Or that life is a commitment to compassion. The truth of our non-separateness. And that the practice of non-harming is an essential vow, is an essential commitment that we entrust ourselves to the precepts of non-harming. And those are summed up, the whole of the Buddhist teaching is summed up in these three little lines in the Dharmapada. Do all good, avoid all evil, save all beings. Do all good, avoid all evil, save all beings. And that's what we commit to. One of those great Buddhist impossible commitments. Right? Do all good. Avoid all evil. So part of what we do when we commit to that, when we commit to compassion, is we're inclining our heart in a certain way. We're inclining the heart and mind in a certain way towards its richness, towards its depth, towards its um, maturity, towards its reality. We're inclining the heart and mind toward the source of our nature, our Buddha nature, our true nature, which is not dependent on history or the conditions that often we're reacting out of. That part of Dharma practice as we learn to be present, as we learn to recognize the goodness of our own heart, of our own nature, and then to keep inclining the mind and heart towards that nature, towards what we know is worthy of our effort and our love and our practice and our commitment. Rabbi Anderson talking about vow. He says, I can make a vow, which for me is the same as practice. The vow will not be to meet each person completely by my own willpower. I will not take that vow. I vow to trust that all sentient beings meet in my life as my life. I vow to trust that all sentient beings meet in my life as my life. 
I will witness the arrival of all things as my life. That's my vow. To meet each thing as my life. To not let it glance off. To not deny. To not pretend. To meet each moment as my life. And he says, that's my vow. What will your vow be? So the level of being present, the level of compassion, and ultimately our commitment is to freedom or liberation or realization or understanding or wholeness. Whatever word, whatever phrase is the deepest intention of your heart, the deepest level of Dharma practice to awaken to the deepest truth of what it is to be a human being and then to enact that reality in this world to realize the truth and then live a life of truth Ashvagosha, talking about this a number of hundred years ago, says, The Dharma of the Buddha does not require a person go into homelessness or resign from the world unless he or she feels called upon to do so. But the Dharma of the Buddha asks every person to free themselves from the illusion of self, to open one's heart, and to lead a life of awakening. And then whatever people do, let them put their whole heart into their task. Let them be energetic and diligent. And if they engage in life without cherishing envy or hatred, and if they live in the world not a life of self, but a life of truth, then surely joy, peace, and bliss will dwell in their hearts and minds. Of course, if you, if you don't know, Dharma is translated as truth the truth of the way things are. And so our commitment is to something bigger than ourselves, something bigger than just getting what we want. It's a commitment to the truth. And when they say in the Western tradition, the truth will set you free, they're speaking the truth. I, I just re remembered that we have this magnet on our refrigerator from Gandhi and he says God is truth God is truth it's the same principle that there's something bigger than ourselves something and by bigger than ourselves I mean bigger than our small sense of self our conditioned sense of self our habitual sense of self the sense of self based on history or historical conditioning and that we commit to that. We commit to liberating that sense of self, to letting the truth of who we are really shine forth in this world. Stephen Batchelor writes about commitment a little bit. And he I like Stephen Batchelor. He wrote Buddhism Without Belief and 
a really interesting book called The Faith to Doubt, another one called Alone with Others. And Stephen has a beautiful kind of existential perspective on Buddhism. And he talks about it this way, commitment. He says, in a changing, ambiguous world, is there anything worthy of total commitment? Dharma practice starts not with a belief in a transcendent reality, but through embracing the anguish experienced in an uncertain world. A purpose may be no more than a set of images and words, but can still be total, we can still be totally committed to it. Such revolve, resolve entails aspiration, appreciation, and conviction. I aspire to awaken, I appreciate its value, I am convinced it is possible. So I'm going to stop there for a second. How many people are convinced that it's possible to awaken? Really? Okay. That's an impressive show. It's really important to, to really be honest with ourselves here. Because I think most of us actually are not, don't believe it's really possible. We think it really happens, it, or it happens for people in a different place or a different culture or a different time or for the Buddha, but that it's not actually possible for us. And I've talked about this before as a failure of imagination, a failure of imagination, that we really haven't let our imaginations loose yet. They're tied to some small idea of who and what we are and even what is possible. If you remember, I, I've often said I'm, I'm impressed by the idea that we don't know what's going to happen in the next moment. And at some point I had a little insight. Not only don't we know what's going to happen in the next moment, we don't know what's possible to happen in the next moment. We don't know what's possible to happen. And so to bind ourselves to what we know is dukkha. It's a certain kind of suffering. That to begin to just open to the infinite possibility that of what could happen. Not only we don't know what's going to happen, we don't know what can happen. That what, and what we are may be so amazing that we can't even imagine it. That what's possible for us is so beautiful that we can't really grasp it. We're so used to an old idea, familiar, habitual, kind of stinky, stale idea of who and what we are. And, uh, and really it was Suzuki Roshi who said, he said um, that inspired me or that was part of the seed for my own insight here when he said, he said when he realized that no moment could be repeated, when he really realized no moment could be repeated, he was enlightened. Still, it's such a beautiful understanding. And of course, there's, there's different levels to that understanding. We all know that on an intellectual level. 
but to really get that no moment can ever be repeated means we don't have to keep referring to the past to even analyze the next moment or figure out, try to predict what's going to happen. We can start to let go of our enchantment with the past as a way to define the present. Of course, it doesn't mean you have to forget about everything from the past. You can use that past knowledge, but we don't have to be bound by it when we really see that no moment can be repeated. We so much refer to the present moment through the past as if they're the same. So Stephen, um, this was a little tangent here, but um, Stephen, he says, I aspire to awaken, I appreciate its value, and I'm convinced it is possible. This is a focused act that encompasses the whole person, the whole being. Aspiration is as much a bodily longing as an intellectual desire. Appreciation as much a passion as a preference. Conviction as much an intuition as a rational conclusion. Irrespective of the purpose to which we are committed, when such feelings are aroused, life is infused with meaning. And you know, sometimes the cart follows the horse, and sometimes the horse follows the cart. What I mean by that a little bit is like sometimes sometimes the sometimes we the commitment is a culmination of our understanding. And sometimes the the um, understanding follows our commitment. And maybe maybe it's more accurate to say both are true. That a commitment isn't um, isn't concretizing something, but it's definitely plugging in in a certain way, taking a stand for what we believe, what we know intuitively, what we love from our heart, and saying yes. And then something else starts to happen. More happens, as they said in this first quote. Right then, providence follows also. You know, in the, in the ancient times, in the Buddhist world, they would say, oh, then the gods become involved. The devas and the Brahma god. And, and if you read the text, that's what happens for the Buddha. Certain things happen and then a Brahma god comes and helps him, shows him the way. And you might consider the, uh, your, own, your own commitments, your own um, Definition, defining yourself, defining your life and your love, and then what's happened from that? What came forward? Whether you committed yourself to um, the arts or music or dance, or whether you committed yourself to a degree, to schooling, or to some kind of work, development, or to therapy, or to the Dharma all that starts to come into play with the power of our beginning to align and commit. 
So there's a beautiful reading that I like to include here from uh, Wendell Berry. And I first found this when I was getting married a number of years ago. And I have to say that um, I've really been impressed by the power of commitment in marriage this time around. <laughs> no, it didn't always work so well, but this time it's really, it's really had its, it, it worked its magic. It's worked its magic. And to watch the depth of relationship that was beyond what I knew was possible and that the commitment has both held and supported and encouraged has been really beautiful. And so this is Wendell Berry, the poet, writer, talking about marriage. He says, the meaning of marriage begins in the giving of words. We cannot join ourselves to one another without giving our word. And this must be an unconditional giving. For in joining ourselves to one another, we join ourselves to the unknown. We can join one another only by joining the unknown. And please, you can think about this in terms of marriage, but also think about it in terms of your own practice. Because to commit to the Dharma, to entrust yourself to the Dharma, is to entrust yourself to the unknown. And to see that we can trust the unknown. That the unknown, the unnameable, the mysterious is, is trustable because it's the reality of our human life. We're not trusting ourselves to something outside of ourselves. It's the reality we're already living. The, the idea that it's not mysterious. We often trust ourselves to that idea. And I don't think that's the truth of the way things are to begin to see how mysterious, how magical human life is. Then to trust it is just to trust the way things are. So he continues, Wendell Berry. He says, marriage rests on the mutable givens that compose it. Words, bodies, characters, histories, places. Some wishes cannot succeed. Some victories cannot be won. So in the ceremony today, I was reading this and I had Ed and Allison on either side. I read these two lines to each of them a few times. Some wishes cannot succeed. Some victories cannot be won. I really, it was, I was putting my two cents in there. <laughs> Some loneliness is incorrigible, but there is relief and freedom in knowing what is real. These givens that Wendell Berry mentioned, words, bodies, characters, history, places, these givens come to us out of the perennial reality of the world. Like the terrain we live on, one does not care for the ground to make it a different place or make it perfect, but to make it inhabitable and make it better. To flee from its realities is only to arrive at them unprepared to free from its realities, to, the per, to flee from the perennial realities of the world, to flee from the mystery 
is only to arrive at it unprepared. And when I hear this phrase, it, there's an echo here from Ajahn Chah who used to say, to run from suffering is to run towards it. To run from suffering is to run towards it. To run from reality is to run towards suffering. Because the condition of marriage is worldly and its meaning communal, no one party can be solely in charge. What you alone think it ought to be, it is not going to be. This is true of the Dharma, absolutely. Where you think it will, you want it to go, it is not going to go. This is absolutely true of the Dharma. Where you alone think you want it to go, it is not going to go. It is going to go where the two of you and marriage, time, life, history, the world will take it. You do not know the road. You have committed your life to a way. And of course, the, the Buddhist teaching is called the great way. Dharma is called the great way. And the great way is not difficult for those who have no preference. Because it's not our will that it will be enacted. It will be thy will or the Dharma's will. And so we commit, we entrust ourselves to the Dharma and then the Dharma does us. It's one of the beauties about silent retreat practice. We, we, we go to, at first to silent retreat practice and we learn the skills and the different techniques and then we think we're doing it. We're going to do it. We're going to do this retreat and I'm going to, this is going to happen or I'm really going to get concentrated. I'm really going to do it this way. You know, some of that happens, a little bit of that happens. But really what happens is the Dharma starts to do us. The Dharma in its mystery will begin to challenge our ideas of who and what we are about what is life, what is a moment, what is time, what is it to be attached? What is freedom? It will begin to reveal reality through us by helping us to let go of our beliefs, our opinions, our views, our imagining, the whole mental realm to a great extent that we live in as a fantasy. And it will begin to center us in the present moment through the immediacy of body, through the immediacy of breath coming out of our minds into our senses in the reality of now and then begin to show the wisdom of the Dharma, the heart. I mean, one of the most striking characteristics of any retreat, each retreat, is how the, the, um, the shell, the, the layers, the veils start to come off the heart. And it happens no matter what your retreat is. If you have a good retreat or a bad retreat, it, it actually doesn't matter. The, at the end one of almost every retreat, the openness of people, because their hearts are open, is so striking as a teacher, and even as a practitioner, my own. It's just beautiful to just watch the heart start to blossom in the, as the Dharma does us. As the Dharma starts to reveal itself through us through our present-centeredness, through our heartfulness, 
through the wisdom or clarity as the, as the eye of wisdom begins to open, to begin to see clearly, no moment can be repeated. No moment can be repeated. And then to begin to live in the freshness and the liveness of this truth. And so we don't commit to the Buddha or to the Dharma. We commit to a way. We commit to a life that is devoted towards to the truth. Devoted to not a life of self, but a life of truth. Wendell Berry continues, he says, Forms join us to time, to the consequences and fruitions of our own actions. The Zen student, the poet, the husband, the wife, none knows with certainty what he, and she, he or she is staying for, but all know the likelihood that they will be staying, quote, a while, unquote, to find out what they are staying for. It's really the beauty of falling in love. You know, we get we get enchanted, and so we we want to stay for a while, right? And we don't even know what'll happen, but we've 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 found enough to love, enough to trust, so that we'll stay. And then when we stay, we find out why we've stayed in the process. And it's the same with the Dharma. You know, often for people, the first blush is a kind of falling in love with the Dharma. It's so great at first. I mean, it makes so much, it's so much, it's so commonsensical, the Dharma. People just love that. Or just being present. I mean, it's such a commonsensical idea. And then to, have, to live a life devoted to kindness, just, it just makes sense. You know, when the Dalai Lama says, my religion is kindness, it makes sense to people. And so there's this first blush. It's really lovely kind of falling in love with the Dharma. And then usually at some point there's another phase which is falling out of love with the Dharma. And that's a really important phase. Because when you stay through that phase, then you find that your one's commitment, one's relationship, is not based on falling at all. It's based on being in love. Or maybe more accurately, being love, seeing that the love we seek is really part of our nature, it's part of who and what we are. And it's why the wise ones always say, um, um, you are what you seek. You are what you seek. And it's why in the, in the Buddha, in Buddhist teachings, we say the whole Dharma is sitting right here. The whole Dharma is sitting in your seat. You are what you seek. So he continues, he says, and he, you know, that we will be staying for a while to find out what we are staying for. And it is the faith of all of these disciplines, whether it's being a poet or a writer or a Zen student or a husband or wife, it is the faith of all of these disciplines that they will stay, they will not stay to find out that they should not have stayed. That part of our faith is that it actually will work in some way that we can't know. And this faith, he continues, has nothing to do with what is usually called optimism. As the traditional marriage ceremony insists, not everything that we stay to find out 
will make us happy. The faith, rather, is that by staying, and only by staying, will we learn something of the truth. And the truth is invaluable. The truth is precious. That the truth, he says, is good to know, and that it is always both different and grander than we thought. So, one of the implications of what Wendell Berry says here is that commitment provides a basis for the unfoldment of the truth. That our vow itself creates a container that allows the Dharma to unfold within our life. And then whatever happens, it is our life and we will meet it as our life. Suzuki Roshi, he would, um, when somebody asked him, if I practice Zen, will I get enlightened? It's a good question. If I practice Zen, will I get enlightened? And he said, if your practice is sincere, it is almost as good. If your practice is sincere, it's almost as good. So we don't know what will happen. We don't, know, we don't even know what's supposed to happen. And we definitely don't know what can happen. But we know, we know that there's something good in the Dharma and that something good is within us. That the Dharma is not outside of us. And we may know it intellectually. We may know it because of the commonsensical Uh, understanding of the Dharma we just may know it in our gut or in our heart but actually you wouldn't be here if you didn't know it you wouldn't be here you wouldn't come on a nice Sunday night and sit and, and listen to the Dharma I'll end this evening with uh, its um, recitation that if you go to Zen Center, you know, if you get up early, go to their 5:40 in the morning sitting. Afterwards, you go to service, to, and um, and in service, um, you'll recite certain vows, and here are the vows that are, are recited. An unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect dharma is rarely ever met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. And a kalpa is a long time. Having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept, I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Tathagata being the Buddha, the Blessed One. Actually, this is before the lecture. And after the lecture, they say, may our intention equally penetrate every being in place with the true merit of Buddha's way. And then the vow, and this is the vow of the Bodhisattva, is beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. 
Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.